This is a call for Community Matters, um, and we're focusing today, we're focusing on local foods, uh, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Ben Hewitt and Neva Hassanen. Um, we're going to do a, a quick introduction to Ben and Neva, uh, and just before we get started, uh, I would like to just go through the protocols for the call. I'm on the phone. Welcome. Uh, we uh, just we have a few a few things that we ask you to do while you're on the line. Um, if you wouldn't mind putting yourself on mute, um, we're expecting quite a few people on the call today. So, um, what we what we would like you to do is open up the Google document that we're using to take notes and uh, ask questions. And uh, if if you're having trouble finding mute, uh, you can use star six, which should both put you on mute and take you off mute. Um, and uh, so what we're going to do is, is have everyone, if you can, open up the Google Doc, use it to take some notes, um, anything that, that you feel is important that you'd like to share, add any links or resources to projects that you're involved in or case studies that you think are really great or really challenging situations that you'd like to share. And anything that, that you feel like you'd, you'd like to have a chat about, just please add your name to the end of it and we'll use that to to call you out and, and share some of your insight. Um, we've got about uh, 15 minutes, 20 minutes for introductions um, with Neva and Ben. And then we've got about half an hour for questions and discussion. Uh, and then we'll use the last 10 minutes to really try and drill down into how people can take some, some action in their own communities. So without further ado, I will pass over to Ben. Um, welcome, and uh, take it away. All right, thanks. Um, so I guess by means of introduction, I'll probably just, I'm going to spend a few minutes just sort of telling a little story, um, which uh, I guess is appropriate because the reason I'm here um, is that over the course of 2008 and 2009, uh, I wrote a book about the efforts um, in the small uh, rural Vermont town uh, to sort of uh, implement, create and implement, and perhaps even blueprint a localized food system. Um, and I happen to live about eight miles uh, east of this town. The town that I wrote about is called Hardwick. Um, and uh, I live in Cabot, about eight miles to the east. And one of the things that had gotten me really, really interested in pursuing this project, um, for one, um, my wife and I uh, operate a really uh, small-scale diversified farm, so I was really interested in issues of small-scale regionalized agriculture. And for the other, um, Hardwick, uh, it's a town of about 3,200, is a town that has had really, really hard times economically um, for a long time. It was uh, a booming uh, granite town in the early 1900s, um, and then when the granite industry uh, really went away, uh, it's the building granite industry really went away very quickly in the 1920s um, uh, due to the advent of reinforced concrete. Uh, the town just really sort of went into um, a long period of economic stagnation. Um, a really, really wonderful community. Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm really loath to call it a depressed town because the community is, is wonderful and very vibrant and interconnected. But the economy um, has been really, really hard hit, and uh, their unemployment rate has been uh, averaged about 40% higher um, than the Vermont state average. So uh, definitely a tough place economically. Um, and then in, in 2005, sort of against that sort of backdrop, in, in 2005 I started noticing, or about 2005, I started noticing a whole host of small-scale um, ag-based startups uh, in the town. Um, 
And, you know, this sort of really sparked my curiosity because as someone who, um, you know, I'm, myself, I grew up in, in rural Vermont in a blue-collar town, and I'd always sort of associated um, the local food movement with, uh, you know, with, with a sort of degree of affluence, I guess, that Hardwick didn't really enjoy. Um, and so I was really intrigued by that. And um, the other part of it was that I was hearing a lot of conversations around among some of these uh you know, these entrepreneurs, um, I sort of termed them the, uh, I dubbed them the agripreneurs, but I was hearing all these conversations uh, about blueprinting a local, a healthy local food system and how they were going to sort of create this model that they could export uh, to, you know, other communities. And, you know, that really sparked my curiosity, too, because I really felt like there, you know, there was a lot of conversation going on around the need to sort of relocalize food. Um, and relocalize economies, but there, you know, there, I hadn't really seen uh, a case study that I found sort of as compelling as Hardwick or someone to really take a sort of really critical look at it. And so I spent about two years sort of exploring it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll save some of, uh, I think, some of my findings for perhaps the question and answer period, but I, I, will just, I would just like to note that, you know, just sort of broadly, um, you know, it was a much more uh, nuanced and complicated story than I had ever imagined. Um, I was really interested in issues of access, uh, particularly for the locals. It really seemed to me like if you're going to create a healthy local food system, um, you should be creating healthy local food for the local people. Um, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things I've really I noted in the book, and I've, I've since noticed, is a lot of the um, enterprises around the Hardwick region, uh, food-based enterprises, are are really relying on value-added products that are being shipped outside the region. Um, but that said, there have been, over the past few years, about 100 jobs created um, in the small-scale um, ag sector in the region, and that's um, not just in Hardwick proper, but that's in the broader region of about 8,000 people. Um, and there are now, you know, just before the call, trying to come up with, you know, sort of comprehensive list of all of the businesses, ag-related businesses, and... Uh, to be honest, I don't even know that I could sit here and count them all off. There's so many. Um, but there are at least a dozen, I would say, that have popped up in the last uh, 10 years, and most of those, you know, back-ended in the past uh, probably five or six years. Um, you know, everything from vegetables to meat to cheeses uh, to seeds, compost. Uh, it's, you know, really quite an array and diversity. Um, and there is a lot of collaboration and sort of resource sharing that I find um, actually really exciting. A couple of the more recent things that I'm I'm sort of particularly fired up about, um, one is called the um, Food Venture Center, which is a not-for-profit um, shared-use uh, sort of food-based business incubator um, aimed at um, creating basically a, a facility, or it is a facility that people can rent uh, by the hour um, rather than having to sort of install uh you know, industrial or commercial kitchens that have regular property. And then there's a project called Atkins Field, um, which is a piece of land that is, they have hopes of developing owned by the Center for an Agricultural Economy, which is a non a not for profit um, sort of facilitating organization in town. And uh, Atkins Field at some point may has the potential to host a number of different sort of community based uh, facilities. Uh, there's been talk about communal. There already are community gardens, but expanding the community gardens, perhaps community greenhouses, uh, a, a place where they could have a four-season farmer's market, um, and that, those type of things. Um, and I just thought I would close by just, you know, I, I, Hardwick is just a, a wonderful town that has, you know, such incredible diversity, not just agriculturally, but also community-wise. And I just wanted to tell this little anecdote about the Buffalo Mountain Food Co-op. Uh, which uh, opened in 1975 um, and still uh, still operates today, 
and so people can get a sense of, you know, kind of what kind of town this is. Uh, for the first a few years of its operation, um, the co-op was uh, located in the same building as a, as a uh, gun store and a, and a liquor shop, <laughs> or a gun shop and a liquor store, um, and this was uh, right next to the police department. Um, so this is the sort of, you know, I find sort of delightful rural diversity that's sort of alive in this town, and um, I think I will turn it over now, um, and thank you very much. That's fantastic. Thanks, Ben. That's a really great overview. Uh, Neva, do you want to jump in and, and introduce yourself and give us a little background on your work? Yes, thanks. Um, my name is Neva Hassanen, and I am a professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana. Um, our environmental studies program has a really strong emphasis on leadership development and uh, hands-on learning, and I incorporate that into my teaching and research and my work in the community. Um, and I also bring a background in agricultural and environmental sociology and work in the nonprofit sector uh, to my teaching. And really, I consider myself a, a scholar activist, and I'm mostly focusing on food um, and over the last decade or so here in Montana, um, we've been really working to rebuild the local food system. Um, in many ways, Montana exemplifies um, some of the classic problems that exist in the dominant food system. Um, on the one hand, the dominant food system has done some things really well, like we've increased production tremendously over the last century, right? Um, we're, pro we're producing more food now, you know, with many fewer people. Um, it's also uh, characterized by... Um, Sorry, can I just jump in? If, if, you, uh, if, if you can put yourself on mute while you're on the line, that would be great so that we can hear everyone speaking. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so really, um, Montana is a state that is a, a classic example of what's happened in the dominant food system. We've uh, gone from having a very diverse agricultural sector that um, fed people here, you know, most of the year, um, to one that is now characterized by mostly commodities that are not only shipped out of the state, but out of the country. 80% of the wheat produced in Asia. Um, we've lost our processing sector. Um, where it used to be 50 years ago or so, it was the number one job sector in Montana. Um, Sorry, folks. Uh, I think we're having a, a little bit of technical difficulty. We're getting in touch with an operator right now, and uh, if if we keep experiencing this, I just ask you to hold the line, and uh, we'll we'll get it sorted out. I'm very sorry for this disruption. Um, sorry, Neva. It's okay. As soon as I stop talking, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's no I'm, that, that's no sign. Okay. Uh, um, let's uh, let's let's start again. I'm I'm sorry about that. Sure. Um, they basically, what I'm trying to say here is that um, in Montana, we're up against, I think, some of the same challenges that people are elsewhere. 
Um, at the same time, the local food movement, I would argue, has gained tremendous momentum over the last 10 or 15 years here. Um, and I think if the dominant food system is really characterized by distance, right, social and physical distance between the point of production and consumption, and the control of the system by a few people, the local food movement and the local food systems are characterized by proximity and diversity. And it's really about regaining something that's central to our lives, the food we eat that we literally, you know, take into our body in one of the most intimate acts um, every day. Um, it's also the way we connect to the natural world. One of the things that the local food movement, I think, has done well is encourage people to buy local, and that slogan is out there. But I think we have to do much more than that. We have to really build um, local systems and give people a meaningful say in what the food system looks like. Um, and so in that sense, it's both personal and political. Um, it, and so we have to have ways that people can get in meaningfully engaged in the process. Um, over the last 10 or 15 years here, we have um, been involved in a wide variety of projects that are aimed to do this, I mean, literally to rebuild the system. Um, and I'm just going to kind of mention them, and then if people want to ask about them, we can talk about it. Um, uh, the program I teach in runs a campus community farm in partnership with a nonprofit organization. It's 10 acres. Um, they provide food for a community-supported agriculture program, which subsidizes production for low-income people. Um, the food is about 20 or 30,000 pounds of food every year goes to the food bank from the farm, and students work on the farm for credit. Um, and they learn about a lot more than growing food. They learn about community um, and what it means to have a meaningful role in community. We did a two-year community food assessment um, that was a comprehensive study looking at our community food system, and it was guided by people in the community um, who uh, a steering committee of diverse stakeholders who came up with the research questions, um, helped us analyze and interpret the data, um, and make recommendations to the community. That resulted in a food policy council, which is called uh, the Community Food and Agriculture Coalition. Um, CFAC has been involved in developing uh, new markets for local food. Uh, we got the first electronic benefits transfer program in Montana established here in Missoula, and now it's at quite a few markets across the state. Um, we've got a farm to college program at the University of Montana that purchases about 20% of its uh, of the annual food budget through um, farm to college. Uh, we also have. Um, pioneered a new program that is now going nationally, maybe other folks are familiar with it, uh, Food Corps. Uh, the concept was developed by one of my former graduate students, and um, it's just exciting to see it's now, there's going to be 82 Food Corps volunteers this coming year across the country. Um, we've also found that if we're going to rebuild the local food system, we have to um, be sure that we have farmers and farmland. 
uh, we uh, are, you know, losing our farmland to development around uh, the city of Missoula because it's a beautiful place to live. And um, farmland, for a variety of reasons, is desirable to build upon. Um, so we're working to get policy changes at the local level to uh, protect farmland for community food security for the long term. Um, we've also worked on, uh, I've worked with a statewide partnership called Grow Montana to get policy changes at the state level to try to address some of the barriers to local food um, procurement in schools, for instance, um, and processing. Processing and distribution has to be rebuilt. Um, concentration in the dominant food system has really made that, um, you know, has really shifted that away from states like Montana. So we have to rebuild that um, in a way that makes sense, on the scale that makes sense for what we're doing. And there's some exciting things there as well. Um, but I, I've probably said plenty at this point, so I will uh, I'll stop there. Awesome. Thank you, Neva. That, <laughs> that was a really broad and rich uh, overview of all the things that you're involved in. Um, I I want to I want to kick off the conversation um with a a comment there are some really great questions in here. What I what I'm going to kick off the conversation with is is a comment that um that talks about what what you guys have been talking about which is really focusing on uh engagement. You a lot of what you're talking about is is focusing on both engaging people with um with the processes around food production and and these issues of staying local, but also kind of finding meaningful ways for communities to get involved in those processes. Can you talk about uh, some of the ways that you've seen that happen? And then maybe other people on the call might want to talk about some of their experiences uh, in in their own hometown. Sure. Who do you want then, to go first? So go ahead. Why don't you kick us off? All right. So, um, you know, in Hardwick area, and, and I think in, in Vermont in general, there probably was a little bit less need uh, for this, just because um, there has, there is a, sort of a I think a, a, a pretty strong uh, regional ag ethos um, al already. Exist, you know, that was existing already. This is certainly true in Hardwick. I mean, one of the sort of re another reason I was really interested to write this book was that um, you know there had been a lot of media attention, sort of. Uh, focused on this very small, or relatively small group of agripreneurs, and I was, you know, aware of so much other stuff that was going on in the community that I really wanted to sort of look into. Um, so I think there was a really, really high level of community engagement um, uh, and sort of uh, basically insight and and you know common ground on this uh, subject already. Um, uh, but you know, beyond that, um, you know, I think I think one of the businesses actually that has popped up as sort of part of this um, agripreneurial uh, movement here is is a restaurant uh, and bar in town called Claire's, um, and it's really sort of founded um, around the idea of a third place, which is this place where people can meet. It's not home. It's not work. Uh, it's the third place where you meet uh, to be with your community. And Claire's is really. Um, uh, first of all, they are, are incredibly committed to um, sourcing their products regionally. They did a food audit in their first year of business and had sourced 78% uh, of their ingredients from within 15 miles 
Um, and so they are, you know, obviously really committed to, to supporting the producers in the region. Uh, but they are also really committed to trying to sort of keep their prices reasonable and to invite people in, uh, make sure people, you know, feel invited into this place um, who might come, uh, you know, from across the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, so, you know, that's a way that sort of, um, I think, entrepreneurialism and uh, sort of community are sort of coming, you know, they've, they've found a way to sort of uh, foment, you know, some of that community engagement that you're talking about. Yeah, that's a, a great example. Um, if if you wouldn't mind, can you throw the link into the into Claire's if they have a website? Oh yeah, sure. Definitely. That'd be great. Neva, do you have any examples of uh, um, kind of great? Well, I think uh, you know the food assessment that I briefly mentioned is one great example um, of a partnership that we've tried to build here, which is we had a 15-member steering committee that guided the research process, as I mentioned, and developed the recommendations for action. Um, and we had 50 students who were involved over the two-year period in varying ways with that um, with that research. And ultimately, there were over 700 residents who participated in interviews, focus groups, and surveys. And then we did a lot of media around releasing the food assessment to the community. Um, we had a big event that was attended by about 150 people. Um, we produced a very, like, these are long, extensive studies, which most people aren't going to read. So we produced a, an attractive sort of poster that gave the highlights of, um, of the findings, and we distributed probably thousands by now. Um, so that's just one example where, and I think that a key piece of, the, there's two pieces to engagement that I think are important well, maybe three pieces that are really important for people to think about. One is knowledge. I mean, people have to have knowledge in order to act effectively, right, to act as food citizens and not just food consumers. And so we have to help, you know, provide that knowledge for folks or draw on the knowledge that people in a community have. And the other piece of of food citizenship is really having meaningful avenues for participation. So, like, our Food Policy Council is a way that people can get involved and um, either just as basic members or being part of a committee that is actually researching specific projects and, and implementing specific projects and policies, trying to get them passed at the um, local level or sometimes influencing federal policy like the Food Safety Modernization Act. So you have to really find and pay attention to ways when can you get people involved in a meaningful way. Um, and I think part of the other piece of that is skill building and, you know, when you when people act, <laughs> take an action and try to get something done, then stopping and reflecting on what worked well, what didn't work well, what could we do differently next time. These are basic principles of community organizing that apply across the board, but food is the great way to get people engaged because everybody eats. <laughs> and, um, and if they don't, that's a problem too we need to address as well. I find getting uh, low-income people engaged in this work is one of the most challenging things um, that actually I think funders could help address, which is um, by making it possible for people uh, to participate in 
in community uh, organizations um, because it takes time. And so, uh, you know, not everybody has that time if you're working two jobs and taking care of your kids. So how do we engage people of all socioeconomic classes is the biggest challenge I, I find. That's a, a great point. Um, and I'm actually I'm going to speak to two questions I see here. One's from Tara. Tara, are you still on the line? Uh, you had a question here about how to attract investors to start businesses and processing facilities. Do you want to talk to that challenge? You still with us? Need to take it? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Do you want to talk to the that question that you typed in? Um, about well, one of the the things that we talk a lot a lot about here. We have a very rural community, and there's a lot of farmers that are starting to do this local food thing, but we're missing a lot of key elements, like we're very limited in the places that they can go to butcher meat. We don't have any processing facilities, and there's been a lot of talk about needing to bring those things here, but how do you do that if there's no one willing to step up and invest in that kind of facility, which is a very expensive undertaking? Um, if there's, you know, suggestions for how to attract people to come in to the area or people who are already in the area to start putting money towards those things instead of other types of development. And it, it sounds like uh, Kathy Gallant, I'm, I'm looking at the question that you've typed in there as well, and uh, Sky, it, it seems like you guys will have um, some experience in, in this area about engaging kind of larger organizations or investors to really get together. So if you guys all want to jump on and, and share some of your experiences, Ben and Eva, if you want to kick it off uh, with, with any thoughts or ideas. You know, I, I can only speak to sort of, I think, acknowledging the challenge of this. I mean, we, you know, I think as we talk about developing these local food systems, there's a lot of talk about, you know, we need, we need to do this as an antidote to the industrial food system. But I think what I've come to sort of uh, believe is that what we really need to do, is, what the real reason we need to do this is we need to develop it as an antidote to the industrial money system. Um, because to me, the the industrial money system and the way our money works in our economy and our culture, uh, it's really what leads to an industrial food system in the first place, and what it's what makes this such a challenging, uh, you know, it, it what makes it so challenging to really sort of um, launch these type of enterprises. Um, you know, Hardwick, uh, a lot of you know most of the investment um, has been private. There's been some angel investors. There have been some foundations uh, willing to put forward some money. Um, and I think, uh, you know, one, one way, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't have direct experience with talking to investors, um, so I don't know, you know, how compelled they are by this, but I know that, uh, when I talk to people within, the, within communities, they are really, really surprised when you start, um, you know, talking about how, how much more of your money will stay within your community when you, when you, uh, put it in the hands directly of a local producer, uh, as opposed to, uh, and when we're talking about food as opposed to simply just going to the supermarket um, and, and buying produce from anywhere or, you know, a processed food product from anywhere. So, you know, the numbers range depending on the study, but at least according to one study, you know, when you go to your supermarket and spend a dollar, about 20% of that is going to stay in your community. If you go to your farmer's market and put that dollar in the hand of a local farmer, about 65% of that is going to stay in your community. Um, and I think that th those are the type of uh, statistics that really um, – appeal to people uh, who, you know, from all across the political and uh, socioeconomic spectrum who really can see the value in uh, keeping money in the community. Well, yeah, I, can, 
Um, I guess I would just add to that in, in that it is a challenge for sure, and um, even the economic development folks, um, you know, have to be uh, educated about the potential for building a local food economy. And, um, you know, we found here in Montana, I mean, it's the number one industry in the state, but they see agriculture as, you know, uh, not a great opportunity for economic development, and part of it is to demonstrate that to them how that's, um, you know, what potentials really are. And so looking, for instance, at what are specific things that you already produce in your area that could go into your institutions, um, for instance, and getting the public sector to essentially invest in those new businesses, or... um, we recently had a fellow named Ken Meter out here from uh, Crossroads uh, Resource Center in Minnesota. Um, he does economic analyses for uh, communities um, to demonstrate exactly like how much money is really leaving our communities. I mean, the, the dominant food system's done a really good job at producing a lot of food and sucking a lot of wealth out of our communities, right? And Ken does a, a nice job of helping you analyze that with um, some existing data that, you know, the government already collects. Uh, so, you know, that's part of it is getting, is, is just educating folks. And I think also telling stories. I mean, I keep talking about research today, but, you know, telling stories about the businesses that are working, getting those stories in your paper, um, trying to attract attention of investors and economic development corporations and so on um, it is a piece of it. But I, I totally get that it's a challenge. And then it's a challenge to find those people that want to create the businesses themselves. If you can find the investors, can, do you have people who have the skills and knowledge um, to create successful businesses? Um, that's, a, that's a tough piece, too. Thanks, Neva. I'm... I'm seeing a note here from Jesse uh, to Tara about the uh, Center for Innovative Food Technology in Ohio. Jesse, do you want to, if we're talking about kind of great examples and getting some of these stories out, do you want to share a little of your experience with that organization? Still on the line? How about anyone else? Does anyone have a great example they want to share about uh, some some local organizations setting up and having some great success? Um, this is Jesse. I don't know if you guys can hear me. Oh, we can hear you now. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, yeah, I'm located in Wilmington, Ohio, and I actually work with an AmeriCorps VISTA program called Grow Food, Grow Hope, and we're working on all different aspects of local food, mainly um, teaching gardening skills to low and fixed income families in our community. But the um, Wilmington College, which is where we're sponsored, recently set up with the Center for Innovative Food Technology. And they have, um, they're really looking at some of the opportunities for the processors, um, the commercial kitchens. We're bringing in some um, larger food based industries like Total Baking Solutions into a very rural community. Um, so I think even though they're Ohio-based, they might be a great resource for you to kind of look at how you can draw that to your community. 
Thanks, Jesse. That's that's a really awesome example. Um, I'm also seeing one from Sky. Sky, do you want to talk about um, the project that you're involved with? Sure, yeah, this is Sky in Seattle with Cascade Land Conservancy. And the project I mentioned is a pretty small new community garden that we're starting. There's a couple groups of refugees uh, that have settled in Tukwila, which is a city south of Seattle. And we've been helping them organize a new community garden. There's a church that has a lot of land, high school next door. So basically trying to pull all of those partners together. And the main goal there is just um, you know, food self-sufficiency for the refugees, especially as um, the federal government has been cutting cash benefits to refugees in the months after they arrive. It's harder and harder for them to even meet basic needs. Um, and one of the really, um, I guess I'd say the, the two areas that I've been impressed with the amount of support is um, from the city's human services group and then from public health agencies and more broadly around here the Seattle and King County Public Health Department got a large grant I think 25 million total from the federal CDC in order to do uh, prevention and focus on both tobacco and then healthy eating active living so they've been putting a lot of money into both policies and some specific projects in a lot of the cities, especially around South King County, which tend to have um, less access to healthy food and much worse health outcomes. So I think looking at it um, first from the economic side that a lot of people have been talking about so far, but then also from the health and the public health side, um, you can really create a lot of good new partnerships um, and getting health departments involved because they what I found is the health departments and um, people in public health are often many years ahead of, um, you know, other folks just in terms of understanding of how local healthy food impacts people and, you know, why it's really important. So they've, they've been a really big support. Thanks, guys. That's awesome. Uh, it's really great to get that insight from, from your project. Uh, speaking of building partnerships and, and kind of engaging community, Glenn, I saw a comment from you about the co-op fund in New England. Do you want to talk to that? I, I imagine you guys do a lot of work right there in the community uh, and do a lot of work engaging communities to get involved. Still on the line with us? Yeah, I um, I was just curious about what you, you folks are as the traditional funding sources for these kinds of food hub operational uh, facilities and I mean, the cooperative fund is a 35-year-old community development financial institution working in uh, New England and eastern New York uh, to finance uh, co-ops, uh, both producer and consumer co-ops, worker-owned as well as co-housing, with a uh, particular focus right now uh, in large part on what those food networks are and the distribution channels. I mean, if we're... Uh, helping to financially uh, invest or support a uh, fish co-op in Mid Coast, Maine, uh, making sure that they're uh, that they've got channels to get that stuff to market and market uh, that don't involve taking the captains out of the sea, if you will, and putting them in trucks. Uh, those are the kinds of things that we want to support. But I'm uh, I'm kind of curious about. Uh, you know, because there's job creation in these these kinds of facilities. There's certainly small business development, 
where the SBA, um, where you've seen USDEA, whether it's the business opportunity grants or other uh, other programs that USDA owns, how they've been involved. And this is for anybody in the, uh, you know, either the the two speakers or uh, or anybody in the audience that's been working with them. Thanks, Ben. Well, uh, or uh, or Ben, do you um, do you want to field that first? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I, regarding the USDA, I mean, one program um, that's been really, really successful and has, uh, in, in, around here anyway, has been um, a high tunnel program that they've been doing. So they've been uh, providing grants um, for commercial growers of any scale um, to uh, assemble uh, unheated high tunnel greenhouses um, to experiment with four-season uh, vegetable production. Um, and the amount of tunnels that have gone up in northern Vermont in the last couple of years is, you know, I, I mean, I probably know uh, personally a dozen people who have put tunnels up and are growing food in them. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, I just wrote a book about food safety and I spent a lot of time sort of hammering on the USDA and the FDA. And, um, but, uh, you know, I'm really, really was excited about that program. I think it's, I think it's really wonderful. Um, uh, and... You know what? There was another part to that question, and I just totally forgot it. So I'll pass it over to Neva. <laughs> um, well, I think the example from that someone just brought up from King County is a great illustration. I mean, it it really kind of depends on which piece of the pie you're wanting to look at and, and work on. And so that, um, you know, it, it could be from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, right? Or um, if you're working on health and uh, diet-related diseases, um, or if you're working on helping beginning farmers and ranchers, uh, the USDA has a, a fairly new grant program, a beginning farmer-rancher development program. Um, foundations, uh, there's a there's, well, there's a variety of programs in USDA I think that are really important: the Rural Development Program, the Community Food Projects Grant Program, which you know, in the scheme of things, is pretty small, but it's done some amazing things. Um, and then the private foundations um, are also increasingly interested in this topic. And so, um, you know, funding is always a challenge. And I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I think part of it, it depends on which piece of it you're coming at it from. You know, if you're looking at economic development, then... Some of the things you mentioned make sense, but uh, there's a whole variety of ways to tap into the funding. I mean, we have to kind of – it's always challenging. I think the larger thing here is that there's a challenge to continue to think systemically, right, to think about how do we address production, processing, distribution, consumption, access, markets, and all these pieces, and waste and composting. How do we address all those things? Keeping that system view in front of us, but then you can't, it's hard to actually work at the systems level, right? So you have to you end up working on pieces of it, and so the funding kind of follows that. If you see what I mean. I, I was going to just add one thing. You know, my view of this is so colored by the fact that so much of what's going on around me is really all. Um, 
being fomented by entrepreneurial uh, entities and, and sort of private enterprise. Um, so there has not been a lot of sort of, uh, you know, a- agency or nonprofit or foundation um, uh, action, I guess, around this. I'm not going to say there hasn't been any. There certainly has. But um, it's really sort of uh, been much more of a sort of groundswell from the private sector, I guess. Well, in northern Vermont, certainly in the Hardwick area and and elsewhere in the Northeast Kingdom, um, like Jasper, um, Cheese Sellers, they did start with a substantial USDA revolving loan. And so that's where, again, is um, kind of like what Nyla was talking about, is using those government um, uh, funding sources as your seed money and then being able to, you know, um, partner with either some businesses for private money matching and or foundations, and then those partners, you know, nurturing them so that they can be, you know, part of your sustainable um, system, if you will, for keeping, you know, the enterprise going. That's a that's a really great point. Who who was that? <laughs> Sorry about that. This is Patricia Sears from Newport City Renaissance Corporation in Newport. Vermont. Oh, fantastic! Thanks, Patricia. We just we want, I think everyone here has some really great stuff to add, and it's it'll be great if we can um, introduce ourselves and make sure everyone kind of knows the context that we're coming from. Um, mm-hmm. I just looking through some of the notes here. It looks like Tom Taylor. Are you still on the line? Um, it looks like you might have some really great stuff to add to this part of the conversation. It sounds like. You're doing some super entrepreneurial stuff uh, in your community um, and are looking at kind of spreading to a more regional level. We still got you down there in Florida? Sorry, were you talking to me? Okay, this is Tom. I was having trouble getting the mute off. Yeah, okay, okay. it happened. <laughs> um, it, instead of uh, star six, it was pound six. So Anyway, uh-huh. um I'm from uh, Tallahassee, Florida, Leon County, and um, I guess my question was, you know, whether other people are working with their um, extension services in the university, usually a land-grant college, and uh, I guess as a couple of examples uh, related to that, they're uh, very active in setting up both community gardens and, uh, and I, I think there's like... 25 different community gardens, and also um, I think there's now 16 different growers markets uh, in town, and we have something that's an, a nice tool that the county GIS put together, and it's a green map, and so you can go on to, uh, the, to the link I've provided here, and you can, uh, in, related to food here, you can figure out or find out where those gardens are, where the markets are, and I think it, you know, says what days and hours, you know, they're open. Um, and they probably don't have them all kind of biased into place, uh, but the, you, those, you may also be interested in other things in the green maps, like it has all the bike trails and hiking trails and uh, um, transit linkages, and there are just a number of other things. So that, that's an interesting tool. Um, a project that I'm working on is something we're calling sustainability teams. And so it's a, a six-session training class uh, that looks at energy uh, and related to this one, food, uh, water, waste, and so forth. 
transportation, and uh, and then everybody creates action plans individually, and they compare their results with each other. And you know, if it's two churches that are comparing it, they can see whether the Baptists are doing better than the Methodists or whatever. Um, but also, we're getting them set up in workplaces and uh, uh, neighborhood associations. Well, that's fantastic, Tom. Sounds like you need to connect with Sylvia uh, and share some of your stories on her radio show. Yeah. <laughs> Sylvia, do you want to talk to that a little and, and share what you're doing with that? Yep. Can you hear me? We can hear you perfectly. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, I, I guess um, I've been a long-time person in communications for close to 40 years, and now I'm with the Northwest Area Foundation, which is based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um this foundation is all about reducing poverty for the long term. And one of the things that we do is work with small rural communities, and we see um, that on the ground local agriculture is being a possible uh, option for people moving out of poverty and to prosperity. So we have provided money to things like the Main Street Project out of um, – Minnesota to help with immigrant farmers, and we see that as being very viable. Uh, we've also worked with over 283 small communities, and these are people; these are communities of under 5,000 uh, to explore, and most of them agricultural, to explore how it is that they remain sustainable. But as far as my radio show goes, it, it's kind of a confluence of, of passion and what I've done as a career, and so now I am also a new grass-fed beef farmer living in a small town in Wisconsin called Avery. And uh, one of the things I do there is to actually have a Saturday morning radio show that uh, tries to make a gentle link between what to eat and how it's grown and how that affects not only health uh, and the environment, but also uh, local economy and living wage. And so on that show, I'm a new farmer, so I don't have any expertise really to share, but what I do is interview experts from all over the country uh, who tell their stories about operating emerging or successful uh, ranches, farms, uh, marketing opportunities. Um, and so one of the recent interviews was with a website called localdirt.com, which is a virtual marketplace that anybody can use um, in order to find a local farmer or to find a local market no matter where you are in the U.S. Um, and, and, and it's with people like that as well as scientists and educators and people who are involved in uh, community development. And so this is a, a way of changing the pe people's perceptions by giving them real stories that tell, tell how it's working already. Um, That's fantastic. Now, I have also been involved in this, in this work in some way or other for over 35 years. And know that a lot of what goes on in America is driven by the prevailing perceptions of what a farmer is and what food is. And, you know, we can rail against um, industrial farming, but I think maybe some of our energy might uh, be applied to, to creating that um, desirable uh, vision and desirable um, brand of farm and farming and sustainable farming. In other words, you know, part of my 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 uh, desire 
is to have kids grow up and say, I want to be a farmer, because that is such a cool thing to do. That's a great, a great vision. It sounds like uh, it sounds like there might be a few stories uh, from people on the call that would be really great to hear on your show. If if you'd be interested, if you want to put your email or a way for people to contact you into the Google Doc. You uh, bet. I'll do that right now. I'm sure there's a, a bunch of people on the call that would love to talk to you. Sure, because um, I talk to people from all over the country um, and bring them into Amory and. The podcasts that I then post on my blog are downloaded hundreds of times from people all over the country. Fantastic. So I'm going to take this chance to plug uh, Sylvia's show. So if anyone wants to get in touch with her, she'll put her details on the Google Doc for you to get in touch and, and share your stories and start to kind of get some of this great thinking out into the broader community. Um, and I'm going to take that as the cue to start us um, – down a slightly different course of conversation um, to really start to try and hone in on some good red-hot tips for action. So what are some some really strong uh, first steps or third steps or kind of tenth steps for people that are along a, a, a chain of action in their local communities? Ben, do you Can want to I offer one? With, uh, sure. Sylvia, this is Sylvia. Um, one of the things I, I, I just did a week, two weeks ago, was I introduced a, kind of a, a, a vision idea on the show. And it was gentle. It was just, I said, hey, you know, this is a tagline for our show, but it's something that I'd love for everybody to consider and, and grab. And it's simply kind of reframing of, of an idea, which is sustainable farming can feed the world. Just a positive affirmation that you know just gets us out of a out of the the, the um, debate arena. That yeah, people can just borrow and use, and you know everybody's mission is different, but it, that's the prevailing idea. And I'm beginning to I have sent it around, and people are beginning to grab it. That's fantastic. So really starting to redefine a vision. I I love. Uh, Love the concept of redefining what a farmer means to people. I think that's a, a really um, great um, challenge as well. Um, ben, do you want to jump in with some insights um, and some kind of key actions that you see people taking, either as a first step or a fifth step? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I am not. Uh, I don't have sort of the uh, facilitating experience that you know, for instance, like Neva does. I'd be really interested to hear her response to this question, but. Um, you know, I'll just sort of relay a couple, uh, you know, I guess a little more anecdotally. I, you know, I was really concerned um, that the downturn in the economy was going to put the kibosh on the local food movement, uh, just because, of course, there are those issues of, of price, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and one thing I've really seen around me, uh, anyway, is that um, as people have become sort of more aware of the global situation over the past couple of years, and I think um, have really become aware that the you know the the world is not perhaps as flat as Tom Friedman would like us to think, <laughs> and that you know it is becoming more you know it is critical that we that we you know figure out ways to make our communities uh, you know sort of become less dependent on a system that that's really really vulnerable. I think the you know the vulnerabilities that have been exposed over the past few years, which of course have been there for a lot longer than that, but they've really been exposed I think to a lot of people over the past few years. 
um, you know, have become just so obvious. Uh, and so I think, you know, the opportunities are really rich right now to engage in conversations about the necessity of, you know, not just relocalizing our um, our food, but relocalizing so many aspects of our lives. And, you know, I talk a lot about, um, you know, just sort of talking about the, the values, what we want as communities, what we want as individuals. And it can sound a little touchy-feely, but, you know, I think the reality is, is that until, um, you know, people can really buy in on sort of a values and ethos level, it's going to be very difficult to sort of create this change in a really durable way because there is, you know, at, at least for the foreseeable future, I believe, you know, there are there is going to be that, that option of going to the supermarket and buying food that really comes with a much lower price tag attached to it, and that is going to be so compelling and so hard to get away from unless we can, you know, get people, uh, you know, on a very, very deep intrinsic level to understand how damaging that is. Hey Tom, I'm gonna put. Uh, sorry, uh, Ben, I'm gonna push you a little on that. Um, sure. I've got ten bucks in my pocket. I'm walking out of the house in the morning. What's one thing I can do to to kind of move my community towards a uh, more sustainable local food? Well, it sounds so you know it sounds so trite, but it, I mean, it, or I don't know, cliche, but it's just you know, I mean, we got we have to be willing to vote with our with our pocketbooks. Uh, you know, there's just there's no other way around it. And, you know, I even I like I'm so aware of these issues, and I catch myself all the time. You know, getting on, uh, thinking that I, you know, if, if I need to get something, the the most it's certainly become more convenient at this point, uh, particularly living in a rural community, for me to get on Amazon and order a uh, order a book or whatever the hell it is I need, um, than it is to sort of sometimes go out and see, go seek it out within my community. Um, but so often I find that those things are available to me within a very um, reasonable distance from where I live. Um, and I think that it's really easy for us, even those of us who are in the choir, um, to sort of lose sight of that. Um, and, of course, uh, the system has been designed so that we do lose sight of that. It's been made very, very simple for us. So I think we need to sort of start, start um, you know, we need to remember that convenience is not always our best friend. Thank, thank you. That That is a very great and tangible insight that people can start to pay attention to and start to really kind of act on. Neva, do you want to jump in with a, a couple of... Yeah. Um, yeah. We want we want tangible. I want things that I can, like, walk out of my office this afternoon and go and do. Well, I think, yeah, that's what we want as a society, right? We want we want the quick fix. And the thing in that, you know, we end up with slogans like buy fresh, buy local, which is been very useful in a lot of ways, um, but are we just consumers? I mean, when do we become citizens and and not just consumers? And the and the that's if I leave with one message today, it's that you, we need to find ways to act that are not only about the food choices that we make, um, because frankly, not everybody can make the same choices that somebody like me can, right? Um, so I think. Um, some what we really need to do is look at avenues for citizen participation. Food policy councils have been formed all across uh, the country now. Um, these are ways to put the issues of food on the local government agenda um, to to articulate that vision that Sylvia is talking about. Movements are built on vision. You remember. 
What do you remember about Martin Luther King? If you remember nothing, you remember I have a dream, right? That's because right. movements are built on vision. So we have to articulate those visions. And um, I guess the other piece I want to say, I mean, there's so many things that can be done, and there's new innovations all the time. I mean, one of my former students is, has just started the first grain CSA in Montana, um, and they provide heritage grains uh, for their CSA members. Well, that's totally cool. I'd never even heard of it before a few years ago. There's this what's exciting about this work, and I, this is why I disagree a little bit with Sylvia, is that I don't think this work is all about, you know, saying what's wrong with the dominant food system. This work is about creating things. It's about innovation. Um, it's about it's about this kid who just last year a youth home here in Missoula. Um, installed a, a small farm in the back of the property because there was some, some land available. And they got the kids who lived in the youth home, right? These are kids who are, have been homeless or for one reason or another are not living with their parents. They've often been through drug court, things like that. You know, this kid didn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, well, a year later, we're raising a few thousand bucks in the community so this kid can be employed and work in another community garden because he got so turned on by it, by being connected to other people, doing meaningful work, humble work, but seeing himself being able to produce something. So you want to do something with that 10 bucks? Send it to me so that I can give it to this kid <laughs> because that's... I mean, we just have to keep looking for those opportunities, and they're there. Um, and so, anyway, I, I see a tremendous opportunity and excitement around this work. And um, so, I'll, I'll stop there. I could go on. <laughs> can I follow Thank up on you. that? Just, can I follow up really quickly on that? Um, go ahead. There was one comment that someone I, I saw on the Google Doc. I thought was really interesting. That that sort of uh, dovetails with what she's talking about, which is. Um, this issue of um, in Maine of a couple of towns declaring food sovereignty, yeah. um, and you know I think uh, this has not yet really been tested in a meaningful way, so it'll be really interesting to see how that pans out. Um, but you know the regulatory environment is one of the huge, you know one of the biggest barriers really to yeah. sort of uh, to, to entry I think for for a lot of producers. Um, and so it just sort of speaks to I think that need for people to get engaged um, beyond simple you know simple consumers and to get engaged on a whole nother level uh, and you know I hear a lot of talk uh, now from other people in other communities about the need to sort of implement food sovereignty in their towns um, and if that's something that can really take off that will be incredibly powerful um, um, Ben I'm, I just want to chime in this is Josh Arnold I posted that question and um, I'm working on revitalizing a Grange Hall in Austin, New Hampshire and actually one of the um, sort of leaders of that food sovereignty or, you know, first pioneers of it, if you will, is from the Blue Hill Grange um, in Maine. And um, I think you're exactly right. You know, I think, you know, you mentioned about how starting with the, you know, the, the money system first, you know, makes the most sense because it's the money system that sort of perpetuates the industrial food system. And I think that's so important for us to remember, you know, when it comes to food, that, that's really within this larger context of community and so um, sort of putting that in that context and if we can um, 
get into these places where we trust one another enough to declare food sovereignty. And so, you know, we can set up these local systems of, you know, bartering neighbors, you know, canned goods for the other neighbors, you know, sheep wool and so forth. And if we're in that tightly knit community where we can trust each other, then we can achieve some of those, those things. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I see here someone just posted that the, the state is actually challenging the um, food sovereignty. And, um, you know, that's, uh, it will be interesting to see how that pans out. But I think, in a sense, even if the state is successful in its challenge, um, it's already, in a sense, lost uh, at least a part of the war because um, now the conversation is starting. Um, right. And actually, the fact that they challenge may actually only serve to sort of bring people together around this issue even even more uh Sort of enthusiastically. So exactly. Yes. 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 Can, I, can I just chime in on this, Bonnie? Just for one second. Do you mind? Sure. Uh, we're, I just want to let I know you know we're at five. We're going to wrap up very shortly. So okay. So just I just I think we have to look at this a little bit more carefully. Um, I'm not. Con- I'm not totally convinced um, that the route that the communities in Maine are going really is 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 very good because I do think we have to work on improving the dominant food system or addressing the problems in it. And I was a backer of the Senator Tester's amendment um, to the Food Safety Modernization Act, and I think um, we have to worry about the vast majority of food that's getting produced and, and fed to people. People are being made very sick. And so I don't think it's a, it's an it's not enough to just say we're worth the seeding. We have to also act to to address the problems in the dominant system. Sure. So, oh, I wish we had more time now. Yeah, we should do a call on that topic. <laughs> this is getting good. So. This is getting spicy. But I am going to come in with my uh, with my gavel here. Um, we're scheduled till five. Um, what I would encourage you guys to do is um, is really throw any other additional comments or uh, or challenges or uh, spicy comments into the Google Doc. Um, and I'm sure if there's an appetite for it, we can find a way to get another call on this going. Um, right now, I want to thank everyone for their time um, and and let everyone know that we will be uh, making a podcast of this call available. And this document that we've all been adding such amazing insights into uh, and questions uh, will be circulated among the group. So if you do have additional questions, if you have comments, if you have links, if you have case studies or resources, please add them into this document. And like I said, if there's a, a really strong appetite to keep this conversation going, we'll uh, we'll find a way to make that happen. And uh, the other thing I would ask is if people do have suggestions on how we can continue to support conversations like this, uh, we'd love to hear it um, because what we're really interested in is finding ways to help you guys continue to do great work in your community. So um, I am going to take this opportunity to thank both Neva and, and Ben for their time. Um, and and again, thanks everyone for such a, a really rich and, and vibrant and lively conversation today. It's been incredibly engaging and really, really wonderful. So. Thank you, everybody. Keep up the amazing work you're doing, and um, and thanks a lot. Thank you, Bonnie.